The reading this morning from the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. You'll find that on page 826 of the Church Bibles. Page 826. That's Lamentations, chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 17. I have been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Well, keep that passage before you as we look at it together, particularly the line which I'm using a different, if I must say better, translation uh, on this particular verse reads, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. If you're someone who's suffering unjustly, then the book of Job is the book in the Bible for you to read. But if you think that some of your troubles may be down to yourself, then the book of Lamentations is your book. The book of Lamentations is an ancient poem. It's a dirge. It's not just about material loss, as great as that may be. It's not just about family loss, as painful as that can be. It's actually about a God who has, at that stage, the writer feels, forsaken his people. And in the middle of this devastation, the prophet is asking, where is God now? Is he against us or is he with us? It's anonymous, although Christian and Jewish tradition have long attributed it to Jeremiah. It's obviously written either in 587 BC or very shortly afterwards when Jerusalem was besieged and its temple was destroyed. Lamentations belongs to the aftermath of that overwhelming calamity. Its five chapters are actually five poems. And it's pretty sophisticated poetry at that. The description is graphic. The city walls have been broken down. The buildings are in ruins. The streets are deserted. Only a tiny handful have survived. Many have been taken into exile by the conquering Babylonians. And those left suffer deprivation and hunger on a level that mothers are even eating their own children. 2.20 and 4.10. The city is like a widow, bereft of her husband and children. She is friendless, defenceless, comfortless, helpless and hopeless. And worst of all, we read in 2.7, the Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sacrifice, sanctuary. 
That is that the sacrifices and the festivals and the Sabbaths are no longer being observed and the fearful judgment of God has fallen on his people. Now it's a view that this prophet has not arrived at lightly. He struggled through the pain of affliction to confess that Yahweh, the Lord, his God, is righteous. In 118 he comes out with, The Lord is righteous, yet I have rebelled against his command. And in chapter 2 he accepts that the Lord has used the Babylonians to punish his rebellious people. And again, it's very graphically expressed. Barry Webb commentating on this particular uh, book of Lamentations says this, and it's uh, a shrewd observation, well worth reflecting on. For if there is but one God who is sovereign over all things, no final explanation for anything is possible other than that he is behind it. And there is nowhere else to turn but into the arms of the very one whose anger you have aroused. And then he adds, if there is to be any hope of recovery at all, protest must sooner or later give way to repentance and supplication. By the start of poem three, the prophet describes his experience as darkness rather than light. But listen now to his account of what happened. He's able to move from the awful suffering of Jerusalem to the steadfast love of the Lord. In the first two poems, he's been the observer. Now he hands that role over to us, his readers, while he steps forward and vents his grief in what is a very personal lament. So... The first half of chapter 3, verses 1 to 18, is his eclipse of hope. The Lord is the subject of nearly every sentence, and yet the prophet doesn't refer to him by name. The prophet simply refers to the Lord as he, as if to symbolise the painful distancing he feels between himself and the Lord. So 3-2... He has driven me. Three, three, he's turned his hand against me. Four, he's broken my bones. Five, he's beseeched me. Six, he's made me dwell in darkness. Seven, he walled me in and weighed me down. Eight, he shuts out my prayer. Nine, he's barred my way. Eleven, he's dragged me from the path and mangled me. And he's left me without help. Thirteen, he's pierced my heart. Sixteen, he has broken my teeth with gravel. He's trampled me in the dust. The language is violent and the emotion is intense. The prophet feels like an an animal being hunted down mercilessly. His adversary intent upon his total destruction. And only when he is at the end of himself does his mood become more reflective. And he dares to name his foe directly even then with some circumspection, as if only too aware of the dangers of blasphemy. Verse 17, I have been deprived of peace. Biblical peace is shalom. It's the state of being where one is in harmony with everything, with oneself 
with those around us, even with the environment around us, the world, and most importantly, being at peace with God himself. He says, I had forgotten what prosperity, or you could translate it happiness, is. So I say my splendour is gone, and all that I had hoped from the Lord. He had known prosperity, peace and splendour. He had been happy. He has now had them removed. He's lost the lot. He is sad. The Lord who had been his source of hope had become his destroyer. And yet here is the threshold of paradox, of a paradox that lies at the very heart of this book. For it's precisely at this point where hope is extinguished that phoenix-like hope begins to rise again. There is a reversal which is internal rather than external, psychological rather than material. The change is in his mind. It happens as one kind of remembering gives way to another. Verse 19, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. This guy is not in a good place. Everything is going wrong. His life is total discord. His remembering up to this point is involuntary. Circumstances have come to dominate his thoughts. The calling to mind of 3.21, however, is deliberate. A choice the sufferer has made. It is in this choice that hope is reborn. This is not simply a case of positive thinking, as if hope could be conjured up from thin air by a sheer act of the will. The substance for hope resides not so much in the choice itself as in what has been chosen. 21. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The content of hope is given in the confession that immediately follows. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now the NIV's translation, great love, is rather weak. In fact, it's anemic. Because really, the depth of that word that lies behind it is steadfast love of the Lord, never wavering. It is loyal love. It's a much better translation. Jeremiah uses three words, steadfast love, mercy and faithfulness, and all three refer to God's covenant with Israel and express his fidelity to it. It is a binding agreement. That's what a covenant is. It's between God and his people Israel, and that is what the prophet calls to mind, and that is what gives him hope. The covenant between God and his people is central throughout the Bible. It was established 4,000 years ago with Abraham. It was renewed with Isaac and then with Jacob. 
Then again, when they were rescued from Egypt, the covenant was renewed at Mount Sinai and the law given to which obedience was required. It was renewed again with Joshua as he entered the promised land which the Lord had given his people. The covenant God and the covenant people are bound. He has bound himself to them. Now covenants between people and nations were quite common in the ancient Near East. But divine covenants are not the same as human covenants. Human covenants were usually between equals and bound by the terms laid down. But God's covenant is a covenant of grace. The people do not lay down the terms. It is God who takes the initiative, who makes the promises, who lays down the terms. And it is this that the prophet recalls. At the end of 1914, Ernest Shackleton set sail from South Georgia to Antarctica with the hope of transversing the, uh, traversing the continent. His advert in the paper of the day had read, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. Ernest Shackleton, 4 Burlington Street, London. Within a month uh, of his ship, the Endurance, reaching the Weddell Sea in Antarctica in January 1915, the ice had closed around her. The temperature dropped dramatically, freezing together the loose ice that surrounded the ship. As the ship's storekeeper wrote, she was like an almond in a piece of toffee. Endurance drifted with the ice pack for nine months and 600 miles. It was then completely crushed and sank. The crew had previously abandoned her and carried on floating on the pack ice for a month and another 400 miles until eventually they settled in April 1916 on Elephant Island. Then Shackleton left 22 men with their two boats upturned for shelter together with the remaining provisions. He left them there. And he himself and five other men set off in a 22-foot longboat with two dinky little sails and a few oars to South Georgia, 800 miles away. A truly astonishing feat. A few hours of daylight within which uh, to get some kind of sense of bearing. Freezing weather conditions. 50-foot waves in the most remote and inhospitable conditions of any ocean. After 15 days, they amazingly arrived at South Georgia, but on the south side of the island. The whaling station in Stromness was on the northern side. Three of them were too weak, so they all rested. And then Shackleton and two others had to climb the 4,500-foot snow-capped mountain range to get to the whaling station and help. Later, Shackleton was to write in a letter to a friend, when we got to the whaling station, it was the thought of all those comrades that made us so mad with joy. We didn't so much feel safe as that they would be saved. 
Picking up the other three on the south side of the island only took a day, but getting back to Elephant Island took four attempts in four different boats and nearly four months. Now, back in Elephant Island, each morning, the leader of the group would say, get your things ready, bo ready boys. The boss may come today. By the 128th day, August 30th, 1916, the men were eating seaweed and getting desperate. True to his word, though, that day, the boss did indeed return. And Ernest Shackleton fulfilled his promise to save the rest of his crew that he'd left on Elephant Island. Worsley, who was his second in command and had gone back on the ship to rescue the men, wrote this of their approach to Elephant Island. He writes, Shackleton peered through his binoculars with painful anxiety. I heard his strained tones as he counted the figures that were crawling out from under the upturned boats they'd been sleeping under. Two, five, seven, and then an exalted shout, they're all there, skipper, they're all safe. And his face lit up and years seemed to fall off his age. Now that is an example of Hesed, steadfast love, loyal love. He had kept his word to save his men. Nothing had stopped him. He did not think of himself. He was prepared to risk his own life in his determination to save them. And that is a reflection of the kind of God we have. Well, back to our prophet. Around him lies devastation. Within him a doubt, fear and pain. Only the assurance of God's steadfast love, his covenant, can give him security. And in verse 20, Jeremiah thinks of his afflictions. I will remember them and my soul is downcast within me. But in verse 21, he calls to mind God's covenant. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. From him, there is no external change. There are still the ruins, the devastation. But he has remembered God, the God of the covenant. Only in God and his everlasting covenant could he find security. And the same is with us. To think about ourselves and our sufferings brings despair. To think about God and his faithfulness brings hope. Verse 31 of chapter 3. For the Lord will not reject forever. For though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love for he does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. And we today are the beneficiaries of the same covenant. Our version has not been ratified by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. His sacrifice was for the forgiveness of sins, our sins, and he died that we might be forgiven. Our new covenant is a fulfilment of the one given to Abraham. God has bound himself to his people. He will never leave us, never forsake us. 
He will be with us always. He will be with us to the end. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So we've seen the suffering of the prophet and his beloved Jerusalem right up to chapter 3 and verse 20. And then we've recorded the covenant love of God in 22 and 23. We've seen the necessary response, a response triggered by thinking. Verse 20, I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. He remembers his afflictions, and he is down. He recalls the steadfast love of God, and his mind moves from despair to hope. There's no change around him. The city walls are still down, the temple is still destroyed, and with it the means of atonement. People are starving. Nothing has changed. The only change is in his attitude because of what he thinks. Introspection had led to depression and despair. He eventually realized that he and his people had in this instance brought their suffering upon themselves. And he at least had turned in repentance. And he turned his attention to God and his steadfast love, which led to hope. Now I wonder how this might speak to you this morning. What particular problem is facing you? What trials and tribulations might have overtaken you? What calamity are you dealing with? Let me suggest what it might be. Is it a moral failure? And you are wrestling with the guilt and the shame of it. Can God forgive you and restore you? Without an answer, you're in despair. Maybe you feel you have committed the unforgivable sin. Well, you need to recall to mind the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Is it sickness? and the clouds which gather on the horizon? Is it depression, whether spiritual or mental, and the darkness it brings? In such situations, it's very difficult to control our thoughts, but there too, you need to remember. Ask friends to pray for you, that you might be enabled to call to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Maybe you've been frustrated in love, jilted and in despair over a human rejection you've experienced. Then think, it's not God who has rejected you. God jilts nobody. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Might you be suffering from bereavement or unemployment? And unemployment is a kind of bereavement with its consequent loss of identity and significance and camaraderie. Maybe you've lost the sunshine of the presence of the living God. 
and you're in the dark night of the soul, then yet again there is only one remedy. And it's only by God's grace that you can avail yourself of it. It is to call to mind the steadfast love of the Lord. Whatever it is, whatever the calamity may be afflicting you, do not allow yourself to be consumed by it. Do not wallow in self-pity. Never get bitter with God about it. Remember, the covenant God and his faithfulness to his covenant with you. I know one Christian who every day woke up and greeted the Holy Trinity and said, Good morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then recited these two verses to himself. In doing so, he would recall to mind the past and the covenant God had made to his people in Christ, and he would look to the future and to God being faithful to his covenant forever. And in the light of the past and the future, we who live in the present live day by day in the grace that our covenant God shares with us. Let us pray. In a moment of quiet, let us bring our personal needs, our failure, our illness, our depression, our bereavement, our unemployment, or whatever it is to God. And let us bring them to our covenant God and rest in his steadfast love. Heavenly Father, we come in great humility. We call to mind that your love is steadfast, your mercy never-ending, and your faithfulness is great. Even in our darkest moments, help us to call this constantly to mind and therefore to have hope. We ask it for ourselves and one another in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.